Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Levita. Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. So we've told you how to set up a compost. How to set up a worm farm. But what's the next wave of innovation coming forward in terms of disposing of your food waste? You'll find out about that a little later on in the show. And what would Australia look like on 100% renewable energy? But up first on the show... Okay, so what are you wearing right now? Oh, You've straight got three to the badges. Question. You've got three badges here. I do have three badges, so I'm going to look <laughs> terrible right off the bat because the denim jacket is actually from H and M a few years Uh-oh. ago. <laughs> I know, but I have I fully have a rebuttal prepared for that. This is Emma Jenkins, and our business organisation is called Thready. Thready is an initiative about sustainable fashion. It all began after Emma kickstarted her very own sustainable fashion journey. And funnily enough, Emma came to this interview wearing a jacket from H&M. But like she said, she has a rebuttal. Um, Because I've worn it over 30 times, which... Do you normally keep track of how many times you wear things? I don't normally keep track, but um, ever since reading this really interesting... It's like this concept of if you wear something 30 times, then it makes it a sustainable purchase because it's not just something you've worn once and thrown away. So when I look at the clothes I've bought in years before becoming more conscious, I like to think about it as have I actually been able to wear this Mm. 30 times. So it's kind of... It's more like a benchmark... So I kind of think, have I really worn that that many times? Are you now tallying? I don't tally, actually. Mind tally. (laughs) It's a mind tally, yeah. (laughs) So I know the items that I've worn time and time again, season in and season out. And then I know the items that I look back and go, that was not a good purchase. I Mm. have only worn that a few times. (laughs) What don't you buy anymore? It's always tricky and it depends what you're shopping for. There's always those gray areas and that's really hard where really you're just left to make the best choice you can. And sometimes, particularly as a student, to really go out and find those things, you know, things like stockings. (laughs) And you're like, I don't know where to get that, you know. Is there such a thing as sustainably sourced stockings? I think there is. I think I did come across a brand recently which was doing that. Just kind of one of those random things where you you think, yeah, it'll be no problem to shop all this stuff. And then you come to it and you're like, I really need that pair of stockings. <laughs> Even like, what about, do you choose to not shop at like big name stores now? It like just kind of in the thing of like, oh, I'm not like 100% sure how to trace this back. Um, there's an app called Good On You, um, which is excellent. So they rate brands based on... Um, their social impact, environmental impact, um, and their transparency, and they give them scores. So that's very helpful on where to shop, and they also have some, you know, quite low end of the scale ones. And there's also a report by Baptist World Aid, um, which you can download for free from the internet, which gives companies a grading from A to F. And so really, I base my choices off there. So anything below like a C or a D, I'm like, no, absolutely not. (laughs) Um, And then anything above that, you'd kind of need to convince me. I'm very careful about it now. (laughs) 
one thing that kind of rings a bell for me, MIA, like the musician being at the helm of a H&M sustainability marketing thing. And I don't really think that being a fast fashion internationally recognised manufacturer of clothing how could they possibly be sustainable? H&M's a really interesting case. So that was an H&M campaign. Um, and on one level, I have to applaud them because they've actually got some amazing sustainability initiatives. So they've got that Sustainability Week. Um, they've got a program where you can bring in clothes to recycle your fashion and you'll get a voucher to spend in store, which is great because a lot of people don't know that you can actually recycle your clothes. So giving people that option is amazing. Where it gets a little bit tricky is that the fast fashion model that they're operating on can never really be sustainable. So that mass production of bringing out thousands of clothes of not very good quality fabric, that really a lot of it just ends up, you know, back in landfill or recycled or that kind of thing because it doesn't really last more than a season. Um, That can never be sustainable. And actually what I think another issue with that is that because the fabrics are lower quality, then actually it's harder to recycle them. So you actually can't recycle them as easily as the really good fabrics. So it's it's kind of one of those things where, on the one hand, I actually think they do some great stuff, but it's something that they can only do to a certain point. They're never going to be a sustainable model for fashion. Are you aware of which materials are the worst? Cotton is shocking. Um, Why? 2,700 litres of water creates one T-shirt. I mean, you think about that, and it just, oh, for me, it blows my what? mind. How? It's to do with the production processes. Cotton is an extremely resource-intensive fabric to create, and it's funny because cotton is, like, just such an easy fabric. It's such a staple of society. Um, but actually, the more I find out about cotton, the more I just think we need to find some alternatives. Linen is amazing. Why? That is not as resource-intensive to create. It's a really beautiful material, functions. It's natural fabrics that functions the same way as cotton. So do you now go out? You look at the material now? Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to say I'm a little bit lazy, and so I don't buy anything that you can't chuck in a machine. So I'm becoming a bit of a fabric junkie. I'm like, ooh, what's that made of? out of? Why is it so soft? Like silkworm. Yes, and like silk. I'm like, oh, that fabric is divine. (laughs) You actually brought up an interesting point. I had like a pair of shoes that I bought and I wore them overseas when I was traveling to the point like this is probably TMI but like they just smell like because it's either the way that they are made and the material used and they're not meant to like last that many wears and nobody I don't think anybody would even really want to recycle them either (laughs) maybe if you can deodorize them or something like that as you say, you don't really want to send a pair of stinky shoes to some poor person who's going to have to sift through them and be like we can't recycle this and chuck them out anyway. What about online shopping? Buying something that might be from overseas, getting it shipped to you, it's in cardboard, it's lined in plastic. Yes. Actually, I work in retail, so I see this every day with things that arrive wrapped in plastic, and every so often I kind of shake my head in the corner like, where is this all going? It's a tricky one. I definitely think shopping locally is really great. I mean, it's the same way that... We have this focus on local produce. 
it's not only good for our industry, but there's something about it being local and impact on the environment is less because it's not traveling those miles. It's just crazy if people had maybe thought about it in the first place, you know, um, is this actually something people would want to wear um, versus can I recycle this um, versus, okay, this actually just needs to go in the bin. Putting that little bit of thought into it is going to save a lot of wastage later. Emma Jenkins from Thready.org. So you walk out of the door of your home that is powered by solar panels, you get into your electric car, drive to work, and then you arrive at work, which is powered by wind turbines. What is this utopian future you describe? <laughs> well, it's a possibility if Australia was run on 100% renewable energy. Let's look at a pie chart of renewable energy here in Australia. If we get to 100% renewables, how much of it is solar power? How much of it is wind power? Well, here's Sven Teska and Nicola Eisen from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney, to clear that up. Yes, we have like 20% solar, 20, 30% wind. And then we have a number of dispatchable power plants, uh, which basically jump in as backup and also some uh, storage cascade. The storage will not entirely be only batteries uh, because batteries can only bring us over a few hours. Uh, we also need some long-term storage in form of um, synfuels hydrogen, which is produced by um, solar wind electricity. And also when we talk about is Australia uh, able to do 100%, Australia has a land mass of more than the EU with the population of Mexico City. If there is a place on this planet where it is possible, it is here, besides the fact that the average uh, wind farm in Australia has 50% more output than, for example, one in North Germany, where I'm from. So the wind regime here is very good and uh, the solar regime three times more than the average European place. So uh, the resources are huge. We are not leading this renewable energy race in Australia. In fact, we're 20 to 30 years behind, (laughs) uh, particularly Europe and parts of the US. Um, But we have the ability to leapfrog. We have a low population base, a relatively low industry base, a low electricity demand because of that. And as Sven has said, some of the best renewable energy resources in the world, which means that renewable energy is part of Australia's competitive advantage. What the challenge is, is the cultural and political mindset that thinks of Australia as Quarry Australia, that our biggest competitive advantage is cheap minerals that we dig out of the ground and we export. That's actually not going to be our competitive advantage going forward. Our renewable energy industry and utilising those resources and then potentially attracting industry to Australia to utilise that will be Australia's competitive advantage. And, and, you know, we're just scratching the tip of the iceberg here around the potential. I want to touch on that, but just to go back to wind power really quickly, um, where we have the potential to have a massive output, is wind power also low maintenance? There is a need for maintenance, obviously. Um, they're very specialized jobs. Um, they're usually involved with climbing, so uh, that re- you really have to climb up there, and they're up to 150 to 200 meters. Um, so you need a very specialized infrastructure, specialized uh, jobs for that. Uh, but that also means that you have a very local jobs because we, you can't organize it via foreigners. Um, so there is uh, you need to be close by. So the, uh, the maintenance uh, argument is a, is a good one, I would say. 
we've just had um, the announcement that Hazelwood is going to close down by March next year, which essentially is one of the world's highest polluting coal-powered stations. And that also means the loss of 750 jobs for people who work in the local area. Mm. How easy would it be if it were possible for those people who work or have worked at Hazelwood to transition from there into a renewable industry? So... There's an organisation in the Latrobe Valley in Victoria where Hazelwood is located called Voices of the Valley. They established because there was a big mine fire uh, at Hazelwood Mine, which actually caused a peak in deaths and and things like that. It was was really real tragedy and there's real levels of negligence, um, both in government and in, uh, in the company that ran it. They have turned their thoughts to thinking about, well, what can we do? What are the jobs of the future? It's already a poor community. What they have created is a plan for an energy transition centre, which is to facilitate new local innovative energy-related businesses. So it could be doing massive energy efficiency retrofits across the the communities. It could be grid-level batteries because actually they have the interconnector going to Tasmania. So if you put grid batteries there, then it would make sense because it it can provide storage and balancing for for a whole range of different parts of the electricity system, not just in Victoria but in Tasmania as well. They know that it's not just about retraining into renewable energy. There are some opportunities and they're also looking to attract manufacturing. So there's some small things happening, but more needs to be done. On the past Friday, the Victorian Premier, Daniel Andrews, announced that there would be a $266 million support package for these people in the Latrobe Valley region. Would that money go towards those sort of initiatives that would pop up? One would hope Unfortunately, it's a little bit too late. This is the kind of thing that needed to be thought about three years ago and plans put in place so that when Hazelwood does shut down in March, those jobs, workers already started their retraining, those jobs were already available. Instead, we're going to have this gap between while planning happens and people are out of work and, and things like that. So one of the biggest problems is the boom and bust policy cycle that we've experienced in Australia. Australians love renewable energy and so when a government wants to do something popular, they'll announce a a renewable energy policy and then it'll go much more successfully than they planned and that means that um, the fossil fuel vested interests uh, or party ideologues will will turn around and say we want something different. Um, This is too successful, it's eating into our profits and so it gets cut and the industry stalls. And that means that it's very difficult to build up a skilled employment base in uh, wind technicians and, th- and things like that. And we, a lot of our uh, renewable energy engineers, of which I studied with many at UNSW, go overseas because they have more stable job opportunities. If we get the policy settings right that, that facilitate a steady uptake of, of our wind and solar resource and, and market, then we're going to see lots more jobs. What would some of these policies look like? We talk about three aspects to the energy transition. We need to uh, reboot our energy system, we need to repower the country, and we need to remove the roadblocks. So rebooting the system means putting in place things like a change to the national electricity objective that says not only do we need affordable and reliable energy system, but we also need a sustainable and fair 
or climate safe energy system as well. And if we put those extra dimensions to it, we means we might actually have a chance of having rules that f- are fit for purpose to this for this new energy paradigm. The second thing we need to to repower the country. So we need to get more renewables in, and we need policy support mechanisms for that. There's reverse auctions or clean energy auctions. Which what are, does that mean? Are the auctions? It's a trend worldwide, and the idea is that governments or even companies like Google tender for a certain amount of electricity generation. Um, and companies bid in to try and provide that at the cheapest cost. And you can set the parameters. And at the moment, so ACT has done a a range of reverse auctions um, uh, because they're headed to 100% renewables by 2020. Uh, They've done it for solar, they've done it for wind, they've also done it for for local storage. And they've got the cheapest wind prices in, in the country because of their tendering system or auction system. Just wanted to uh, explain the word cheap. We don't want to have as cheap as possible because cheap is very expensive. You have to usually buy it twice. If you uh, get a very, very cheap wind turbine and it lasts only five years, um, then it's at the end very expensive rather than buying a more expensive one which lasts 25 years. Cost efficiency. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks for the pull. As, as a formerly German engineer, I don't like the word cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the third part is around removing the, the roadblocks. So it's about a just transition, so packages for workers and, and communities where coal and, and other electricity generation is shutting down. It's about going, well, we need to manage an orderly plan to exit coal generators as renewable energy generators come online so they don't act as a roadblock. So those are the three building blocks of, of this transition to a, a clean energy future and the policies that we need. I've got one more question for you, um, and hopefully this doesn't open a can of worms. What happened in South Australia a couple of months ago? Well, the uh, line came down, and when the cable, which transports electricity, has an interruption, you cannot transport electricity at this particular part. There's a couple of things to say. One is, it was a perfect storm, pun intended. <laughs> you know, it was a massive one-in-once-in-50-year storm. AMO, the Australian Energy Market Operator, has done a preliminary report. They'll do a more detailed report. And they don't know as a system operator all of the things that happened in that few seconds and then few hours, sort of 12 hours. Um, There are elements that are known. For example, that three uh, transmission lines to the north of the state did come down, that the interconnector was running at high capacity at the same time. There's a blame game being played at the moment. And there's also already been evidence to point to the fact that there is uh, a concerted campaign around South Australia more broadly because South Australia is one of the leaders in the world in terms of the uptake of renewable energy. It's Denmark, Texas, South Australia, Costa Rica, you know, four of the places around the world that are leading this transition. And there are a lot of vested interests that want to see that fail. I didn't know that South Australia was so at the helm of it. What are they doing to really put them at the lead of the pack? Well, it's, they have a very high share on wind power. So South Australia has a 35% share on wind, which is very high. And um, about 5% solar. So they're yeah, a bit over 40%. Um, yeah. so you I, mean compared to other states? No. So so they have 40% of South Australia's electricity is generated on average from renewable sources. 
that's one of the highest proportions in the world from mm. um, variable renewables, so from solar and wind. wind. I mean, other, the other countries like Norway have 98% uh, uh, renewables. That's not a, the, the point, uh, but it's mainly hydro. It's hydro, and we've known right. how to do hydro for years and years and years. There's newer technologies, mature and established and cost-effective technologies, but you know how to manage a system around them. Uh, South Australia is at one of the forefronts. And the thing that they've done is that they just happen to be in one of the windiest places in the world, and they've been able to capitalise on the national uh, renewable energy target because it's a competitive scheme, and that means that... Uh, you go where the best wind resource is because wind is the cheapest technology and the better wind resource you get, the more output you get, which means the more bang for your buck. And the government is, is backing it in as well and coming out really championing and going, this is our competitive advantage and this is the way of the future for this state. Sven Teska and Nicola Eisen from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. When you have a compost bin, it does overflow. So what do you do with all that extra good food waste when your compost bin is overflowing? And your worm farm is your worms too are full. worming. <laughs> your worms are full. They're completely <laughs> overfed. Well, how about you dehydrate your food? Ooh. Uh, a dehydration system, it heats food waste to 90 degrees. Uh, in 24 hours, it was ju- reduced in volume to about 20% of its original volume. And that's just sucking all the mo- Is that sucking all the moisture out? It's just heating it and turning it. And with that turning, there's also microbes in the system to help break down the food waste. This is Dina Pham from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Dina is talking about the food dehydrator system that's recently been installed at UTS. So the benefit is you have... of the volume of food waste as comparison to this much larger volume that you need to truck or do something with that reduces, when you have that smaller amount, reduces the cost of trucking that food waste to either landfill or to earth power to use it as energy. And then we can potentially, now that the outputs from that system are regulated by the EPA, we can use that food waste on land, Mm. so in gardens or, or parks. Why does it become so much smaller when you dehydrate it? Uh, well, when you think about food that you put in your composting unit, it massively reduces in size. So it just shrinks in size. The water um, content uh, is removed from it and the microbes help break down that size of that food waste to something much smaller. What's the stuff that's left? Oh, look, I should have bought your sample. It looks like, um, <laughs> it just looks like soil. So it looks black like soil and depending on um, percentage of different food in the batch, it might smell like, for example, coffee. If you put a lot of coffee grounds in it, it might be oily with coffee grounds or it might... Essentially, it smells like soil and it looks like soil. So just to understand, um, you put it in this vent and then it's taking out all the moisture and um, it's reducing in size. Then it's turned with a sort of... Internally within that system, there's a turning sort of spool uh, and then it's heated at the same time and with this new system we'll have microbes as well. So it's, yeah, it's not going anywhere. It's just reducing in size and then at the end you have something that looks like soil. (laughs) And what what can you do with that? Yeah, well, we have been talking with the City of Sydney to be able to use that food waste at Sydney Park and... As kind of like a, as instead of soil or? Oh, it actually has to be mixed with soil. And there's, there's very strict 
ways that the EPA have um, given us to use that process output from the system. Um, we can't use it, for example, for growing crops for animals. It can't be used, for example, directly on top of soil. It needs to be mixed with soil. It needs about 90 days, for example, to be used in um, food gardens. We can use it in mixed with soil and then use it in sort of under trees or fruit trees, that sort of thing. But this is really new. It's a really new system. So it's only in July that EPA gave us regulations for how to use the outputs from that system. Um, before that, you actually couldn't use it, couldn't legally use it on soil. Why does it need time to mix with the soil? Well, I suppose it's those microbes in the soil that end up mixing with the processed waste and helping you have a richer sort of end product. Also, you're dehydrating things like processed meats. What we have done is try to get people to separate their food waste very clearly. There's no plastics or metals, hopefully, in the end product. But there may be processed meats. So when you dehydrate it and you re-wet it, there might be the problem with pathogens and microbes. So the pathogens coming out of that rehydrated processed meat. So the idea of trialling this system for two years is really important. And it's really important to mix it with soil for those reasons I was just saying. Right. Yeah. And why is it so new? Why are, are there other systems like this that have practised dehydration for food waste? So it's new in the sense that we now have support from the EPA to be able to use the outputs from that. I suppose that's essentially the case. And we've had systems like composting or worm farms and that sort of thing. And you can get a... a industrial-sized worm farm, but for UTS, with the, where the space is so, you know, small. and It's a lot of worms. Yeah, it's a, that's a lot of worms. <laughs> if you're talking about five tonnes a month, that's a lot of worms. It's interesting that you said meats earlier as well, is because when you have meats with other food waste, are you able to break that down in the same way or do, do meats sometimes contaminate? Mm-hmm. Does that have to be separated? Uh, you can put all the food waste, meat, vegetables, you know, into the dehydration system and it will break down. So it's not like a, a composting system, which is a very slow process of breaking down food waste. This is a fast dehydration system because it's heat, essentially, at heat and microbes at a very high temperature. So 24 hours, you have, say you have 100 kilos of um, food waste reduced to 20 kilos. So it's a quick dehydration system. So in that sense, you can put in food and meat, vegetables, but we really want to try and keep out paper, Um, tissues for example and I just saw outside your office a green waste bin that says don't put your tea bags tea bag um, paper into here so we were talking about this a little while back in terms of we drink a lot of tea here at the station Mm. and a lot of us still drink from tea bags and it's got kind of the cotton or we holding in the tea Mm. and we had this discussion of well uh, should we be putting that into the green bins Mm. or should we actually be taking out the tea leaves putting them into the Mm. green and then putting the bag into the red bin, which mm. is where you can just throw all your plastics and, and all that sort of stuff. Mm. But it's actually got me thinking about it at home now as well. Mm. If I do have a tea bag at home, which bin should I be putting it into? <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have a, a composting unit at your house? I don't. Not yet. Okay. Not yet. <laughs> I would say that would be a better option. Like right. I, I, You're talking about a really small amount of contamination, like, but doesn't that but, but build up? It does. That's right. It, exactly. So if you had a thousand tea bag strings in the composting unit, the question is, what do you do about that? And right. So we're still getting some contamination in the organics, and we really need to think more about okay, not just those sort of issues about tea bags, but also what about you know biodegradable or compostable um, cutlery and plates? And there's a lot of 
big issues to think about when you're thinking about sustainably managing our organic waste at UTS, and the tea bags is one small part of it. To go to the dehydration system, is it an energy expensive practice? Well, because they're so new, of course, the technology provider gives us stats on the energy consumption. And what we're going to be doing as part of the project is monitoring the energy consumption. Hopefully, if we can, monitor both of the systems, one that isn't regulated and one that is, to get some sort of hard data around how much does it actually cost to run these systems on site at UTS. Because, as you know, you know what technology providers or, or manufacturers say costs in energy consumption may not always be right when we put it in in practice. So they're part, that's part of the process of putting these systems and monitoring, evaluating them. You know, can we reduce contamination of the organics across the university? Can we develop education campaigns for people to understand how the system works? And then the technical issues around, can we really get some data around how much it costs in practice? Dina Pham, Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at UTS. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like Think Sustainability, search for us on your podcast app or iTunes. Just search for Think Colon Sustainability. You can find out more at our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. This show is a collaboration between the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER Radio. I'm Ellen Lee I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week. Bye.